Good evening again. So just before we start, I want to acknowledge that maybe some of you weren't expecting to see me up here again already, but we've had just a slight adjustment to our talk schedule since Kim has left, and in our place we have Diana, who only just arrived from California, so we felt it would be kind to give her a bit of time to adjust to being here before she gives her first talk. So this evening, given that it's only a few days since my last talk on Sunday, I thought to take advantage of that and do a kind of a follow-up to some of the themes I shared then. While perhaps they're still a bit fresh in your mind, or if not, (laughs) that's okay too, I know myself how Dharma talks seem to just evaporate pretty quickly. So in case that's true for you, just a quick recap. So all of us teachers, we've been presenting slightly different aspects of the Buddha's key teachings, which he himself described as being about dukkha and the ending of dukkha. And a theme that he presented through the framework of the Four Noble Truths. And on Sunday night, I focused on the first noble truth through an exploration of liberation through non-clinging. And I was looking at the fourth clinging aggregate of sankhara, volitional mental formations, and how these often play a pretty powerful role in I-making, my-making. In other words, creating and reinforcing a fixed, solid identity a me at the center of all experience, which, if we cling to it, becomes a source of suffering. And when we look more carefully at this whole process, we start to recognize how much time, energy, effort it actually takes to prop up the illusion, or more accurately, the delusion, of being someone. Because most of the time, It's not enough to just be anyone. We want to be someone special, someone successful, someone admirable. And we don't want to be ordinary, average, or even worse, a failure or a loser, as you say in the U.S. Now, when I describe it like that, you get a sense of what a simplistic binary that dynamic is. And yet it can be so deep-rooted, often in very unconscious ways that drive a lot of our suffering as we flip from inflation to deflation and back again. Or as one Zen teacher described it, believing ourselves to be that little piece of excrement at the center of the universe. Maybe some of you recognize that. It's a harsh way of putting it, for sure. But when we're in the grip of that dynamic, it is experienced as harsh. It's dukkha. So tonight I want to explore some of the common ways that this particular type of dukkha gets created and how to help it release. Now, before we go any further, just a reminder, the sense of self itself is not the problem. It's a natural function of being a human being. What we're looking at is what we add onto that, the tendency to cling, to solidify, to collapse our whole identity 
into a narrow and contracted self-view. Because as I think you all know from your own experience, not only is that painful, it gets in the way of the freedom that all of these teachings are pointing to. So through this whole, exper- this whole exploration, I just encourage you to keep orienting to kindness and compassion, recognizing that this tendency is universal. It's not unique to any of you. It is deep-rooted. It's something that all of us are having to navigate to varying degrees as our practice continues. Okay, so on Sunday, I looked at the clinging aggregate of sankhara, volitional mental formations, and I focused on the aspect of them being the stories and the narratives that we tend to tell ourselves that reinforce some kind of fixed identity. And this is because as the Buddha discovered in his own experience, quote, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. And we see this in relation to sankharas. When there's no mindfulness, those stories amplify the clinging, amplify it into craving, which in fact the Buddha described in the Second Noble Truth as being the cause of dukkha. And interestingly, in the context of the Second Noble Truth, the Buddha was quite specific about what he meant by craving. He identified three forms of it. The first one is relatively straightforward, craving for sense pleasures. I think that's pretty easy to recognize, and many of us have talked about it quite a bit already. So I won't go into that one anymore now. The other two cravings are related to this exploration of the suffering of identity clinging. So they are craving for becoming and craving for non-becoming, or in Pali, bhavatanha and vibhavatanha. Literally, thirsting to be and thirsting to not be. So let's unpack those a little. First, craving for becoming. It's the desire, the urge to exist, to be someone. And it has, at times, takes on flavors of wanting to be seen, to be recognized, to be noticed, to be acknowledged, to be approved of, to be liked. It can also include the desire to take on a role or a function or a status, identity of some kind, often as a way of trying to give ourselves certainty in a world of change and flux. And sometimes we see this in relation to our Dharma practice. I think maybe, especially in the beginning, we can tend to take it on as a giant self-improvement project. And that's rooted in that urge, that craving, to make ourselves better. But if we look more carefully, we see that that's actually grounded in self-aversion. And eventually that self-aversion gets in the way of real freedom. So we need to let that go too. And on a more subtle level, 
this craving for becoming also includes just that basic primal urge for continued existence. You could even say it's just our survival instinct. And when mindfulness is more refined, we can sometimes recognize this as just that tendency to lean a little forward into the future, wanting the next experience and the next and the next and the next maybe unconsciously hoping that the next experience is going to be finally the one that's going to do it for us once and for all. So we have a sense that this craving is unfulfillable. And sometimes on retreat, when we directly touch into the relentlessness of this craving for becoming, this craving to exist, we can flip into the opposite kind of craving, the craving for non-becoming, for non-existence. And again, this has varying degrees of intensity and flavor. It can show up as just that wanting to withdraw from the world. Maybe on retreat, when you hear the wake-up bell, it's like, oh, just let me pull the covers up, stay in bed for just a little bit longer can show up as the wanting to be no one, to be anonymous, invisible, no responsibilities, to withdraw from all of the stimulation and the social engagement, find some relief from the burden of always having to perform and to be someone in relation to other people. And in its most extreme form, craving for non-becoming includes suicidal ideation or even acting on that impulse to not exist. Now that's one extreme of how these cravings can show up. But as I'm trying to show, they cover a whole range of intensity. And in the context of a retreat like this, there's a subset of these forms of craving that can be very powerful to explore. And that's the phenomenon that the Buddha referred to as mana, or comparing mind, sometimes also commonly translated into English as conceit. So mana refers to that very common tendency to assess ourselves, and specifically to assess ourselves in relation to other people. So seeing ourselves as being better than, or worse than, or the same as believing ourselves to be superior or inferior or equal to someone else. And the symptoms of this comparing mind, they include being constantly aware of what other people are doing and hyper-aware of what we're doing in comparison. And often that awareness comes with an inner monologue, assessing how well or badly we're doing relative to everyone else or sometimes to ourselves on previous retreats. Mana is not just confined to retreat experience. It, comparing mind shows up pretty much anywhere where there are other people. So in our families, our workplace, our communities, neighborhoods, our sanghas, it's a pretty pervasive phenomenon. And in the silence of being on retreat, we can observe how does it show up for us so that we can train in seeing it for what it is, 
seeing it as just another deeply conditioned sankhara, mental formation. And like all the sankhara, it has only as much power as we give to it. Now, on the surface level, it might sound like this tendency of comparing ourselves to others is a pretty modern phenomenon. And definitely it's been intensified by social media. But it's interesting to me that the Buddha recognized this pattern all the way back in India 2,600 years ago, which suggests that it has pretty deep roots. And in some ways, it does seem to be a universal human experience. But I don't want to make too many assumptions. So just to check, have any of you recognized some form of comparing mind ever? (laughs) Maybe even here on retreat, just occasionally? Yeah. If yes, then perhaps you've also noticed how volatile that pattern is. So here's a hypothetical example based on a true story. One morning, I just sleep through the wake-up bell, and I arrive in the hall late, and I try to slink in quietly so nobody will notice, but of course I trip over someone's spare cushion as I sit down and crash onto my sitting place. And I spend the next 45 minutes just convincing myself that I'm the worst meditator ever. And then I notice the person in front of me slumping and bobbing and nodding, and suddenly I feel like, well, I'm not doing so bad after all. (laughs) In fact, I think I'm doing quite well. Energy's good now. I'm going to sit longer than usual. I'm going to stay until after the bell rings, at least 30 minutes, until I'm the last one in the hall, and that'll show them. (laughs) So I sit for an extra half an hour, staying, 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 feeling pretty pleased with myself. But when I open my eyes, I realize it's only been 10 minutes. (laughs) And everyone around me is still sitting there. So, okay, I'm no better, no worse than anyone else. I take a sideways glance at the person next to me and realize they have this blissful smile on their face, which probably means they're in the 16th jhana. (laughs) If there is a 16th jhana, I can never remember all those numbered lists and Pali names. And now I'm back again to being the worst meditator ever. It's exhausting. Obviously, all of that agitation in the mind is dukkha suffering. But there are a couple of nuances to the Buddha's understanding of mana, maybe aren't so obvious when it's translated into English as conceit. Because in English, the word conceit usually means thinking ourselves to be better than others, being superior, inflated, special, arrogant, all of which are not generally approved of in society. But in the Buddha's understanding, thinking oneself inferior to others is equally a form of conceit. When I first started exploring this, it was pretty counterintuitive. Counterintuitive to some of those common patterns of psychological self-mortification that we've spoken about a few times now. And sadly, 
in mainstream society that just does some to does seem to be a very pervasive tendency for people to be very hard on themselves, harsh, cruel, undermining, and even in some cases to unconsciously believe that this is somehow healthy and beneficial. But the Buddha invited us to understand that this kind of self-negation is actually a form of craving for non-becoming. And when we position ourselves as worse than, it's an aspect of comparing mind. And we're just reinforcing some pretty deluded and afflictive thought patterns. But again, even as we might start to recognize that pattern more clearly, we want to make sure that it doesn't inadvertently reinforce that same tendency So we don't want to judge ourselves if we do recognize those painful sankhara. Instead, we need to understand just how common they are, how deeply rooted in our own individual conditioning and in societal conditioning, and try to meet those patterns with kindness, with compassion, with patience, so that they can gradually soften their grip on us. So then the third aspect of comparing mind, which again might seem somewhat counterintuitive, is the tendency to think of ourselves as equal to others. And this one might seem like it's less problematic. Well, we're no better or worse than anyone else. What's the harm in that? But from the Buddha's perspective, it's still rooted in delusion because it's creating a permanent fixed identity in here to compare to the person out there that we're taking to also be permanent and fixed. But as we understand the truth of impermanence and the truth of not-self more deeply, it becomes clearer that each person is completely unique. They're a unique and changing expression of all the causes and conditions that have shaped their whole lives. So how could we possibly be the same in any way? There's a bumper sticker I saw a few years ago that sums this up very well. Always remember you are unique, just like everyone else. (laughs) Worth keeping in mind, always remember you are unique, just like everyone else. So comparing mind, mana, it operates in the context of our own lives also. So we compare compare how we used to be in the past with how we are now, maybe anticipating how we're going to be in the future. And again, both of those views carry a sense of a fixed identity that continues from past to future. And often, if we look more closely, Again, there's that underlying sense of someone who needs to improve, to get better, to make progress. And we can see that sometimes even in the course of one sitting, comparing mind might come up with a sense of, right, this is the one where I finally get it. The mind is going to settle, deep samadhi is going to develop just like on my retreat two years ago, the awakening factors are going to come into play, and is it happening yet? Is it happening yet? How's my calm? My calm's not happening. How's my concentration? Where's that rapture they keep talking about? 
And there we see comparing mind at work again. Now again, just to acknowledge, this kind of judgment is very different from discernment, from clear seeing, which is a skillful ability to recognize, okay, calm is not so strong right now, or a little more steadiness of mind would be useful. That's what I think of as discernment. It's just clear seeing, as opposed to judgment, which tends to bring with it that sense of me in the center of it all. So we do want to be able to recognize what's happening, but without referring back to someone who needs to micromanage this whole project. Okay, so those are the three forms that comparing mind takes thinking oneself better than, worse than, or equal to. And because the tendency to negate ourselves seems to be so common, I'd like to say just a little bit more about how this can show up, so that again, hopefully, we can start to recognize it more clearly, take it less seriously, take it less personally. So I don't know what's going on in mainstream societies these days, but I've seen in my own experience and many of the students that I work with in different countries around the world, so many people carry this pervasive sense of not being good enough, of being inadequate, unlovable, a fraud, or just somehow fundamentally flawed. And even when I name that out loud, it's painful just to hear how distorted those self-perceptions are. But unfortunately, when we are in the grip of them, they stop us from seeing clearly. They keep us locked into a small, tight sense of me, one that's isolated, disconnected from other human beings around us. And again, perhaps at times you might recognize that pattern coming up. And if you do, just an invitation to understand it's not your own unique shortcoming or your own personal neurosis, but something that's so common in contemporary society So to try not to take it personally, and as best you can, again, meet it with kindness and self-compassion. So with that as context, I'd like to take a look now at a specific aspect of retreat practice, where comparing mind pretty easily gets activated. And that's in the individual practice meetings with teachers. So Bante mentioned this briefly last night when he talked about fear. But what I'd like to do now is explore this in terms of comparing mind as a symptom of both craving for becoming and at times craving for non-becoming. So for many people, these patterns start to get activated a few hours, maybe even a few days before the next scheduled practice meeting. We might notice the mind getting caught up in planning and rehearsing, sometimes motivated by the desire to be seen as a good or even an outstanding meditator. And so we spend time writing, practicing, 
And, you know, it's fine to jot down a few key points about what you want to share about your practice or any questions. But if it turns into hours of ruminating, should I say this? Or will this sound intelligent? Or will that sound stupid? And how can I show that I really am a great meditator? What if I can't? What will they think of me? Should I just give up now and go home? All of those patterns, maybe some of them sound familiar. And again, if they do, see if you can recognize, okay, this is craving for becoming, arising due to conditions. And as Rebecca said this morning, we don't feed them, we don't fight them. Instead, try to withdraw your energy from the content of the thoughts and just know or name or note, okay, rehearsing is like this. Anxiety is like this. A surge of self-compassion is like this. So bringing in mindfulness and self-compassion before the meeting is helpful. And then also when you're waiting for the meeting too. So sitting in the hallway right before your uh, scheduled meeting time can be a really powerful place to do some Brahma-Vihara practice for you yourself and for any other meditators around you. They may look completely calm and composed on the outside, but chances are that on the inside, at least some of them, might be navigating just a few flickers of comparing mind. So I've shared with some of you the experience one time of when my first retreat meeting with Joseph and you know being pretty intimidated and meeting after meeting I would just feel like I was waiting to see the dentist and I'd be working with all of this inner anxiety and then one time I finally thought wow I'm really calm really still this is great I've got over that anxiety and then my time came and I went to open the door and my hand was sweating so much I couldn't even grab the handle of the door. <laughs> so, okay, try again next week. <laughs> so we want to try to have a sense of humor with all of this, not take it personally. And then grounded in mindfulness, kindness, self-compassion, we might have a better chance when we come into the actual meeting to stay steady to notice some of those deeper sankhara that sometimes just do get activated being in the presence of a teacher. And again, in my own experience, perhaps we notice flickerings of desire for approval or fear of rejection, maybe a wave of irritation and frustration or suddenly feeling like we're six years old. And if all of that comes up, seeing if you can just know it's part of the practice. It's actually a powerful opportunity to recognize the craving for becoming, the craving for non-becoming, and train in helping it to release. Okay, so we made it through the actual meeting. seemed like it went well enough, but then we find ourselves spending hours rehashing whether we should have said what we said or not 
and whether the teacher really got it or they're just pretending to understand and whether they might secretly think we're an idiot who's wasting their time. And again, clarity and compassion, recognizing this as a pattern. And one aspect of this whole phenomenon that I I find poignant, even slightly tragic, having been on both sides of this student and teacher dynamic, is that every one of us teachers here, we genuinely care about your well-being. We genuinely want to support you as best we can. So we're a team of six people who are pretty dedicated to helping you experience more ease and happiness and freedom, which is pretty rare when you think about it. There's not that many situations in everyday life where that's the case, where you're met by people who deeply wish for your well-being. And yet in spite of that, the distorted perceptions of comparing mind, craving for becoming and non-becoming, can tend to see judgment where there isn't any, and sometimes use that misperception to reinforce inadequacy, or maybe at times the opposite, inflation. So just similar to something Rebecca said this morning, I'm deeply inspired by the effort that all of you are making. Obviously, I'm not meeting with all of you, but the fact that you're here in the hall, it's huge. And being on retreat like this is perhaps one of the hardest things you'll ever do. So I just encourage you not to underestimate the value of what you're doing here. And as the sankhara of comparing mind maybe gets a little softer, Perhaps in the practice meetings, it'll be easier to take in the kindness and the compassion, the appreciation and the equanimity that we're offering to each of you. So speaking of encouragement, I'd like to share a contemplation, a practice that's been very helpful in my own life as an antidote to that tendency to fall into insufficiency or inadequacy. It's a teaching that I found kind of by accident a few years ago now, when I was doing some research about the practice of mudita, appreciative joy. And at that time, I came across an interesting discourse, a teaching that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. And in this sutta, Mahanama asked the Buddha to give him some teaching that was suitable for lay people like himself, who live in, quote, a household that is dusty and crowded with children. So in other words, he wanted a teaching that was suitable for a householder rather than a monastic. And the Buddha obliged, and he told Mahanama that he should contemplate six things every day, frequently throughout the day, And that if he did this, he would develop the kind of rapturous joy that leads to deep concentration, which in turn leads to clear seeing and to insight. So the six things that Mahanama was advised to contemplate every day were firstly, the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dharma, the good qualities of the Sangha, 
those are fairly traditional Buddhist recollections. And then, likewise, the last contemplation, which is to contemplate the good qualities of the devas, or celestial beings. But what interested me most in that list was the fourth and the fifth items, where the Buddha instructed Mahanama to practice recollecting his own generosity and recollecting his own good qualities, his ethical conduct or virtues, as it's sometimes translated. So I'd like to read you just one part of those instructions, just the passage in relation to generosity, so you can get a fuller sense of what the Buddha was inviting Mahanama to do. And this is based on a translation by Tanasaro Bhikkhu, with the pronouns changed to be gender neutral. And just a note that Tanasaro tends to translate Nibbana as unbinding. So one thing, when developed and pursued, leads solely to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. Which one thing? Recollection of generosity. You recollect your own generosity. At any time when a practitioner is recollecting generosity, their mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Their mind heads straight, based on generosity. And when the mind is headed straight, the practitioner gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. So the same passage is then repeated in relation to Mahanama's virtue, his good qualities. And in my own practice at that time, when I first read those instructions, I found that idea pretty confronting And I don't know if it's because I'm a masochist, but because it was so confronting, I decided I had to give it a try. And I was surprised at some of the benefits that came from it. I'll talk about that in a moment. But first, just to acknowledge that for some people, this practice can touch some pretty deep conditioning around unworthiness. And sometimes when I've shared this practice with students, they have a similar response at times almost of fear, because sometimes there can even be a sense that they're so flawed that they somehow deserve to suffer. So perhaps you can recognize this as a kind of craving for non-becoming, a kind of self-negation that fixates on our shortcomings and isn't able to open to a wider perspective that takes in strengths as well as weaknesses. 
So this practice can also touch into fear of the other side of craving, the craving for becoming, craving to be seen, to be recognized, to be acknowledged as special. And in this case, sometimes there's concern that if I open to my strengths, it's going to make me inflated, conceited, superior. That's a possibility. But as I think it was Brian mentioned the other day in relation to pleasant mind states, the pleasant mind states that come from deeper concentration or samadhi, if we just avoid those states out of fear of getting attached to them, it doesn't we don't learn how to navigate any tendency to cling and to help it release. And it also mis- means that we miss out on the benefits of those skillful mental states. So in a similar way, we can train in opening to the full spectrum of who we are instead of unconsciously just focusing on our deficiencies or shortcomings. And then those strengths become a resource for us that deepens faith in the practice and trust in our own capacity to do it. So for me, part of the learning from this practice was recognizing not only my own individual and family conditioning of avoiding my, acknowledging my good qualities, but also some pretty deep societal conditioning too. So for example, I grew up in England and New Zealand And in both those countries, it's a broad generalization, but being reserved, being restrained, not self-promoting, are seen as good things. So there's a lot of social pressure to not blow your own trumpet or toot your own horn, as I think you say here in the U.S. And then similarly in Australia, where I also spent a lot of time, they have what's known as the tall poppy syndrome, the idea that the tall poppy, anyone who stands out from the crowd, gets cut down to size. And in Japan, apparently, they have a saying, the nail that sticks out gets hammered flat. So you can hear from all of those common sayings in society. It's not surprising we might have a fear of going anywhere near acknowledging our own good qualities, even to ourselves. Now, to be clear, I'm not inviting saying this is a practice just about somehow puffing ourselves up as an antidote to feeling deflated. And it's not about taking ownership of our generosity and our good qualities and using them to create a new and improved sense of self. Instead, it's more about just opening to and acknowledging the truth that all of us We have a mix of different qualities and attributes, some that are positive, skillful, and beneficial. And as the Buddha pointed out to Mahanama, openly acknowledging our strengths turns them into a resource, something that helps us to develop confidence on this path. And so when I decided to give this practice a try, before I started it, I assumed I would need to take care that it didn't make me feel inflated or special or conceited. But I was surprised to find that actually the opposite was true. I discovered that when I felt just more connected to my 
own good qualities as well as everything else, I could much more easily appreciate the good qualities of other people too. I felt more at ease. I felt a sense of kinship with other people instead of that more usual unconscious comparing mind habit. And to my surprise, those old habits of better than, worse than, same as, quietened down almost to the point of disappearance, just from being able to open to the full spectrum of strengths and weaknesses. The second unexpected benefit was that the more I contemplated my so-called own good qualities, the more I recognized they didn't actually belong to me at all. I couldn't really say they were mine, because just like everything else, they arise from a multitude of impersonal causes and conditions. So some of those good qualities came from my parents, or my teachers, my friends, the society I grew up in, the Buddha's teachings, my meditation practice. And while I could appreciate them for what they were, it doesn't make sense to take ownership with them. Just as it doesn't make sense to take ownership and identify with afflictive states either. So if this is of any interest, if you would like to experiment with it as a practice, One way you might do it is just at the end of the day, take some time to recollect or to reflect on any skillful actions, any generosity that you did during the day. And again, in my own practice, I found it more helpful to think of actual specific actions that I did rather than just making generic positive statements like, I'm kind, I'm generous, I'm helpful because those can sound like kind of new age affirmation practices that, you know, it maybe subtly can reinforce a sense of me. So instead, just recognizing actual times, examples of being generous or behaving skillfully, maybe just before you go to sleep, taking a few moments to bring those to mind ways that you were skillful and possibly ways that you refrained from being unskillful. So at the very least, here on the retreat, you might acknowledge you didn't kill any living beings today. You didn't steal anything. You didn't slander anybody. As far as I know, you didn't get drunk or high and so on. (laughs) There's many ways that actually your behavior, your actions here are skillful. And that's underneath all of the active cultivation of beautiful qualities of heart and mind that all of us are doing here. So you can take time just to silently acknowledge these to yourself. And as you tune into them, just notice any positive emotions or mind states that maybe come up in response. Maybe some gratitude or some appreciative joy, for example. Another way you might explore this is uh, through formal Brahma-Vihara practice. So in the phrases that I posted on the board the other day, maybe you notice the mudita phrases, the alternative ones, may I appreciate my own good qualities, 
May I take joy in this good fortune. May this joy continue. May it grow. May it lead to ever-deepening ease and freedom. So that first line, may I appreciate my own good qualities, this is based on the Buddha's instructions to Mahanama. While it's true that in the later Buddhist tradition, mudita practice came to only be practiced for other people, as I think I mentioned in my overview of the Brahma-Vihara the other night, back at the time of the Buddha, mudita simply meant gladness and there was no sense of it having to exclude oneself. So taking in the Buddha's instructions to Mahanama, I think they can give us permission to contemplate our own good qualities as a source of appreciative joy. So not only appreciative joy, but actually all four of the Brahma-Vihara, they can be really powerful antidotes to the affliction of comparing mind. And interestingly, there's another term that's sometimes used to describe the Brahma-Vihara, and this term is apamana. Apamana is usually translated as boundless or immeasurable. So sometimes the four Brahma-Vihara are referred to as the four immeasurables, because in their fullest development, they become completely unconditional, unlimited, boundless. And etymologically, the mana part of the word apamana is the same mana that comparing mind is referring to. The Buddha uses the term mana to refer to the cognitive function of mind that's about comparing, discerning, discriminating, making distinctions, and measuring. These are all forms of mana. And the term apamana means to go beyond measuring and comparing. Or you could say to enter into the heavenly realms, the boundless states of the four Brahma-Vihara. The power of these four beautiful qualities to overcome all harmful mind states is emphasized in a passage from the Majjhima Nikaya. And this discourse stood out for me because it contains actual exclamation marks. Now, those of you who are familiar with Buddhist texts, you might know that usually the language is pretty neutral and understated. But here in this passage, the language is directive, emphatic. It says, cultivate the meditation on metta, exclamation mark. For by cultivating the meditation on metta, ill will disappears. Cultivate the meditation on compassion. For by cultivating the meditation on compassion, cruelty disappears. Cultivate the meditation on appreciative joy. For by cultivating the meditation on appreciative joy, listlessness disappears. Cultivate the meditation on equanimity. For by cultivating the meditation on equanimity, Anger disappears. So with practice, these four Brahma-Vihara states, apamana or boundless states, help the heart and mind to release the pervasive habit of comparing, 
and assessing and judging and measuring so that we can dwell more and more in the sublime states. And over time, kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity become more and more our default setting. So this whole process of meeting our afflictive thought patterns, the sankhara of comparing mind, the craving for becoming and non-becoming, meeting those patterns with clarity, with kindness, compassion, it's not only about finding psychological relief. It has the potential to lead all the way to the highest happiness, the peace of Nibbana. So may we all learn how to free ourselves from craving, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a couple of moments of silence.